There we go. How about a microphone turned on? Second Timothy. Second Timothy. We are going to spend the duration of this summer, such as it is, in Second Timothy. It's Paul's last letter. He's imprisoned. He's in danger. He will shortly lose his life. It is arguably his most personal letter. Uh, we find these great manifestos like Romans and Galatians, which speak of the gospel in great legal terms, articulating point by point the technicalities and the breadth and the width of the gospel. That is not Second Timothy. Second Timothy is personal. He assumes that Timothy already knows what the gospel is. And while there are gentle reminders throughout, the thrust of this book is how do we apply that then in pastoral ministry. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy and Titus are often called the pastoral epistles. None of them maybe I think is pastoral as this one. Why second Timothy? Uh, we spent a few weeks in Isaiah 40. We spent a few weeks talking about coronavirus and the Christian. Uh, why not go back to Hebrews? Why not? We'll get back to Hebrews one day. But I've been thinking about my grandfather, the old Pentecostal preacher, right? Uh, any given day, he's busy throughout the day. He's in the garage. He's in the shed. He's in his mid-80s. His back is shot. His knees are shot. His hips are shot. But he's too busy to sit still. And so uh, he gets up in the morning, gets ready, spends a little bit of time in his brown lazy boy chair. Uh, and I think uh, there have been multiple incarnations. They all look the same. I don't know if they've got like the Buck McIntosh version of this chair. And then he's busy all day. And when he finally completes whatever project it is that he's done with, he sits on the corner of the front porch. And usually at some juncture, he's going to knock on the door and ask my grandfather to bring him a Little Debbie snack cake and a Pepsi. And whoever happens to be within earshot at this point is drawn into the sermon. Because the old Pentecostal preacher can't stop preaching. Some of my favorite moments in my life have been spent on the front porch with the old preacher preaching. You never know what passage, what topic, what subject is going to come up. There are going to be multiple ones. He's going to preach as long as you're sitting there. He started before you got there. He'll be going long after you're gone. But I miss that. And I miss that in days just like this one. Because he brings experience to novelty. And he brings wisdom to youth. And so one of the reasons why 2 Timothy. Why seven weeks in 2 Timothy? It's because... This is like sitting on the front porch as a very young Timothy. And here is old Paul. Paul at the end. Paul with his highest priorities. Paul in his most personal letter. Preaching to the young boy here. Here's how we're going to go, son. This is how it's going to be. He says, starting in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you'll remember from Mother's Day, the next few verses, 
I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy and I'm reminded of your sincere faith. It's a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and now I'm sure dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of <coughs> excuse me, Corona. Follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Father, I pray this morning you would help us to understand these words. I pray that you would use the Holy Spirit like you used it in Timothy's life to help us apply these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Timothy. We know a little bit about Timothy, and we don't have the time to work into a full biography this morning, but what we know about Timothy essentially is this. What boils down at the bottom of the pot about Timothy is this. Timothy is relatively young. 20s, early 30s, maybe something like that. Paul is older, 60s, 70s. We don't know exactly how old he was. But Timothy is marked by timidity. He's a little fearful. He's racked by anxiety. He's never quite confident of his calling. He's never quite confident of his ministry. He's never quite sure that he's doing the right thing and that he's doing it the right way. And so Paul here at the end of his life, the last letter we get is a letter to Timothy. And it's a letter to Timothy in that situation. And it's really encouraging, even here in the first chapter, to see how it is that old man Paul, on that front porch moment, guides and encourages and empowers Timothy to do the work that he's been called to do. You can see the baton being passed here, right? Paul's mission is nearly done. He's going to say at the end of this letter, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have guarded the gospel that has been entrusted to me. And by the way, that same gospel has been entrusted to you. It's yours now. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to fight the same fight? Are you going to run the same race? And so here, even in the opening words, in the opening verses and sentences here in 1 Timothy, he is getting Timothy ready. And I hope for our congregation over the next seven weeks that you understand that here is Paul also getting you ready. 
He's getting you ready to guard the gospel. He's getting you ready to fan the flame of faith. He is getting you ready to grab that baton and run with it in your house and in your job and in your neighborhood and your spheres of influence. Here is Paul preparing you. This is an intensely personal letter, not only between Paul and Timothy, it's an intensely personal letter for every believer who has dared to open this book and read it like it was written to them. So without violating the context of 1 Timothy, I want you to understand how these great lessons have been poured down through the generations for 2,000 years and are just as applicable now as they were two millennia ago. And essentially here in the first chapter, Paul does three things. First, he encourages Timothy. He encourages Timothy. Take a look again at the first couple of verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Pretty formal, right? Here's where he shifts gears, verse 2, to Timothy. And how does he call Timothy? My beloved child. Great thing to reflect on on Father's Day, isn't it? My child, whom I love grace and mercy and peace from God our Father. And he says, I thank God with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly. I remember your tears. I long to see you. The first thing that Paul does for Timothy is that he encourages him. Now, it really wasn't that long ago we talked about Barnabas, right? An extraordinary encourager. Are you an encourager? Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we spent... $1,500 between our two cars getting them worked on. Uh, We've got a weird Honda deal. Uh, I thought it was the starter, and the starter's also bad. We'll work on that later. Something called a VTC actuator, right? And I took it to one Honda dealership, and then I took it to another Honda dealership, and you know how it is. You pay about 100 bucks for the diagnostic. And uh, if you get it fixed there, then the... But I walk in, and I, you know, okay, I've gotten the phone call. There's something wrong. What is it? And he prints me up the piece of paper, and they're still using that paper that has, like, the, the little ticker deal you can rip off the sides and the same printer they've been using to just destroy everybody's day for about 30 years. Uh, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. <laughs> Don't hold back. I'm glad the president sent me a check. Okay, here we go. <laughs> right. You know, it's interesting how often I've seen discipleship run as diagnostics. Hey, you know what? Let me just spend some time with you and and, and tell you what's wrong with you. Let me tell you some things about you that you may not know about you that I know about you, and here's how we're going to fix them. (laughs) It's fascinating that in Paul's most personal letters, he doesn't run discipleship as a diagnostic service. Now, he's going to come in and he's going to encourage Timothy. You're going to find the ways that in Timothy's struggles, Paul comes in and bolsters all of those up, but he starts with encouragement. He starts with encouragement. Now, it's funny. Um, I had Instagram for about three weeks and just didn't love it. But I do Facebook, and I see, uh, even still, once in a while, somebody that I went to high school with will ask me my friend. And they are always just a little weirded out by the fact that I'm in ministry, like Christian service. (laughs) Because I was a huge jerk in high school. And it wasn't like uh, being a jerk for its own sake. I just relished uh, being as clever as possible, and, and sarcasm served really well in that role right? And so I wouldn't say I was mean, but I just had a really good job at finding whatever it is that you were insecure about, making fun of it publicly. So uh, this is how I spent most of my high school time. 
And then between my junior and senior year of high school, I went on a mission trip, and everyone else on this mission trip, and I just kind of went along because, you know, what I, yeah, it's fun to get out of the country. We're going to go to the lavish <laughs> nation of Albania, which was, I soon discovered, the poorest nation in Europe at the time. Uh, but we were there with all these students from this Christian college who were just a few years older than I was, and I was stunned by the fact that they didn't make fun of each other. They did not relate to each other by cutting each other down. And I had never really experienced that in a group of friends before. I think my friends cared about me, but the way that we loved on each other was by just mocking each other's moms as severely as possible. That's how we did that. It's Father's Day. It's not Mother's Day, so I'm allowed to say that. So I'm around all these uh, college students from a place called Cedarville, which just seems like the weirdest place on earth because they were so encouraging. I mean, somebody did something. Hey, man, you did a really great job. Man, oh, I should have done it. Oh, man, thanks for doing that. It was just one of the most polite and encouraging environments. And then I got there and I realized, you know what? They weren't an outlier in this great subset of these college students. They were all kind of like that, right? How weird were these people? And so I remember being there, and I had some inkling that I was going to go into ministry. That was kind of in my heart and mind. I thought, you know, Lord, this is an area where I really need to grow. And I remember being like 20 years old, and it was near New Year's Eve, and it's when everyone's thinking about resolutions. And I'm thinking about, what would I really like to achieve? Man, I'd love to read my Bible more. I'd love to pray more. But I remember praying on that New Year's Eve, like 2002. God, I pray that you would make me an encouraging person. And, and so, you know what's happened? Every New Year's, for like the last 20 years, I've been praying the same thing. God, I pray that you would make me an encouraging person. And I really try hard with this. Uh, I, I think about, especially in the way that Paul writes to Timothy here in 2 Timothy, and how encouraging, and there's a record of it here, that one day, if you were to go back through all of my emails, and all of my text messages, and all of my posts on Facebook, that hopefully what you would find more often than not was he worked really hard at trying to be encouraging. And even as I think about the ministry relationships that I have here at the church, especially with our staff and our deacons and our elders, these people that I'm in this ministry relationship with, hopefully there is a record of, hey, you're doing a good job. I'm grateful for you. Here's how God has equipped you, and here's how everybody gets to see that. Now, sometimes I fail spectacularly, right? I love sarcasm. Sometimes that's low-hanging fruit. It's hard to pass up. But the thing that Paul does right out of the gate is encouragement. It's not, let me tell you what's wrong with you. It's, let me tell you in Christ what's right with you. As you think about discipling your kids, dads, especially here on Father Day, let that one sink in. Where do we start? We start with encouragement. Secondly, he recalls how God has equipped Timothy. He not only encourages him, he recalls how God has equipped Timothy. Take a look, you know, look at verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, the, the verbiage that's being used here in verses 6 and 7 isn't that there was no fire in Timothy's life, that it had completely died out, that the flame had been extinguished, but rather, there's something going on here. There's something really happening. Now, let's feed that. Uh, let's add a little more. Uh, the fan into flame, I think, is more literally rendered here. Rekindle, right? There was kindling on this fire, and that's how you got it started, and here we are going to rekindle 
this flame. Let's add some fuel to the fire. Let's let this very small thing grow and grow and grow into a brighter conflagration. And he says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Do we have it? Is it in Timothy? Yeah. Which is in you, already there, through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us, God gave us, a spirit, not of fear. Which is where Timothy was, fearful. He knows the truth. He's afraid to say it. He knows the right actions. He's afraid to live them out. He knows the ministry to which he's been called to do. He's afraid to execute that ministry in the world that God has placed him in. But we don't have that fear. That's not what God has equipped us with. God has equipped us with power and love and self-control. He doesn't talk about what Timothy isn't. He reminds him what Timothy is in Christ. You see who Timothy might have been, but also who he could be. I wonder how many in this room are fearful. You're afraid. You know the mission that God has given you to do. You know that we have been called to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the very ends of the earth. You know that we have been called to proclaim His glory and grace. But we're afraid to reckon with the truth and we're afraid to live it out and we're afraid to embrace that ministry. And the message from Paul to people who are afraid is saying, now now you remember this, uh, young believers, old believers, whoever it is that's living in fear, what you have been equipped with, the tools that you have been given are power, love, and self-control. Power, love, and self-control. So, I remember being maybe 15 or 16, and um, that's one of those really important ages where you start to acquire some things that you're going to need for the rest of your life, and it's Christmas, and there were a couple things I had asked for for Christmas, there's this one giant heavy package, and I had no idea what this thing was, right? And there were some smaller things. also heavy packages. And I had no idea what any of them were. And they were all wrapped like in the, not in like fancy uh, wrapping paper that, you know, some kid's school is selling and so you buy four rolls of it and it lasts eight years. And They were wrapped in comics and duct tape. So I knew then they had to come from Pop, right? Because that's tacky in the most hilarious way possible. And you know what it was? It was a toolbox. It was a giant red toolbox which I was really excited about because it looked just like my best friend who lived across the street. It looked just like him, but it was a little bit bigger. (laughs) So I get the giant red toolbox, and each one of the wrenches and screwdrivers and stuff that I got that first year wrapped in the exact same way. I had to take a knife and cut every single one of those suckers out, right? Which was great. Because at 15 or 16 years old, I got a toolbox that I still have today. It's in my shed, right? Big red toolbox. Slightly bigger. Well, Scott, Scott's like a mechanic now. His toolboxes are way bigger. But I have this giant toolbox here in my garage. He equipped me on that day for almost all the routine house stuff that has to go on as being a homeroom. And so now at 37, I'm still using the same tools that I was equipped with 20 years ago. Dads, here's one of the great lessons that you can impart to your kids. There's not only great things that you can equip them with, right? Get them tools. Show them how to use them. Show them how to change a tire. Show them how to jump a car, whatever it is that you've got to teach them, those great fatherly sorts of things to do. But you can also remind them of the way that God has equipped them. 
here are the earthly things that I'm giving you to get through life on this planet. But here are the things that God, your Father, is giving you to get through this spiritual battle that we have all been thrust into. Son, remember, you don't have to be afraid. God giving you power. Daughter, look, I know that hate is so strong, but he has given us and equipped us and modeled for us this incredible love. Now, I know, son, look, the world is out there. There are so many temptations. And you're going to be tempted to do all sorts of incredible and salacious things. But remember, you've been gifted the gift. You have been equipped with self-control. These are the things that the Holy Spirit is using in your life. Power, love, and self-control. You've been given those things. So he encourages Timothy. Secondly, he recalls how God has equipped Timothy. And finally, he recommissions Timothy as one entrusted with the gospel. Timothy has been entrusted with the gospel. Now, uh, in the modern evangelical world, it's really common for uh, young preachers to be ordained, right? You go through your ordination council, there's an ordination service, and then uh, somebody gives the commissioning sermon, and that's kind of how this thing has worked, where we recognize publicly, all right, you say you want to be in this, our church believes that you should be in this, Uh, we recognize some gifting there, uh, the calling of God in your life. And uh, here's that service. And I've spoken in a couple of those. I want you to imagine what's happening here in verses 8 through 14 is something like one of these commissioning services. Because you're going to see how Paul reminds Timothy and recalls for Timothy that he's been one who's been entrusted with the gospel. Now, a a couple of things emerge here, starting in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, right? The, the first salvo in this commissioning sermon from Paul to Timothy, be reminded here of what it is that you have been given. You have been, like he says here in verse 13, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, uh, given the task to guard the good deposit entrusted to you, right? You have been given the gospel. Guard that gospel, opening point of that sermon that Paul preaches to Timothy it's okay to suffer because you can suffer without shame he's been equipped to suffer unashamed I remember reading that autobiography of Nabil Qureshi Nabil Qureshi uh, was a Muslim student who converted to Christianity and before his untimely death at 34, 35 years old from stomach cancer, he was an evangelist and an apologist with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And he did an incredible amount of work, not only in the secular world, but specifically where we interact with the Muslim world and thinking about who Jesus really claims to be and who God is, the God of the Bible as opposed to the God of the Quran. And he talks about how hard that journey was for him personally. Because here were his father and his mother. And maybe we don't understand this as well because we don't come from a high honor culture. We come from a very individualistic society where when I do what I want to do, that's right for me and you should just get over it. But he was born into a world where what fathers and mothers did reflected on their children and what children did reflected on their parents and he says I remember the first time I told my parents that I was leaving Islam and I was going to be a follower of Jesus Christ and he says my mother wept 
wept in sorrow. And my father put his face in his hands and wept. But not in sorrow. In shame. For the shame that they would feel in the community from having father to son who would leave the worship of Allah. And he said, my heart was broken. I wept with them when I told them. Broken into little pieces. But I didn't weep from shame. Because my identity was not in who my father was or what I did for my father or what he did for me. But in this new relationship that I had with Jesus Christ. So I could suffer this unashamed. Unashamed. It's interesting in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 we find this great reminder too that because of the work that Jesus Christ has done for us he is not ashamed of us. The gospel isn't a gospel of shame. Secondly, he's been equipped to fulfill his calling in humble obedience. He, he says here, starting in verse 9, He who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And he's going to want to say here in verse 11, For which I was called and appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Here is the God who has given them a great calling. And he goes out here specifically to say that the way that I was called was not because I had earned my calling, that I was so smart, that I was so honest, that I was so obedient, that I was so wise, that God brought me into this. He says, no, he brought me into it because of his own works. The very first time I preached in my hometown, my uncle, he's got a little church, he brought me in and it's my uncle and my aunt it's a sunday night service in the little pentecostal church i knew a lot of stuff but none of that was anything related to preaching <laughs> and so i had a sermon and it was about 17 points and i want to say it's about an hour long and it was bad i mean you think this morning is bad that one was, this is one of the great things and i don't know if you've ever heard this line before he does not call the equipped he equips the called I've taken great solace in that over the years. He calls you not because of you. He calls you because of him. And he's really confident that he can get you ready to do what he's called you to do. Have you embraced that? This happens a lot. And I hope that our youth work with this over the next couple of weeks as they work through these studies related to how do we engage the church and how do we think about faithfulness in times of calamity. Because I find that this... Uh, infects our youth more than anywhere else. The, uh, you know, I'd love to do that, but I don't know anything about that, and I can't do that, and I've never done that before. Well, of course, you're 12. You've not done anything before, right? But we're going to get you ready. Because you've got to understand, we have a God who calls us to serve him, not because of how awesome we are, right? But because of how awesome he is. And he's going to prepare you to serve. He's going to get your heart ready, and he's going to get your mind ready, and he's going to get your hands ready, and he's going to put them to work for him. And I need you to feel, for all the kind of discomfort that you feel when you are really young, and, and I'm, I know I'm singling out here, this may be relevant for some of our adults as well, but when you're really young and you feel like, I'm just not good at anything, I don't know any of that yet, it's all right. Everybody starts out a novice. But if you serve the God of the heaven, right, the high king, he will equip you in your calling to be ready to do what he's called you to do. He'll get you ready. 
He's going to take care of you. He's going to make sure that you're worthy to fulfill your calling. Finally, uh, he's been equipped to suffer under shame. He's been equipped to fulfill his calling in humble obedience, and he's been equipped to guard the gospel with unwavering faith. But I'm not ashamed, he says in verse 12, for I know whom I believe, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow in the pattern of sound words. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. Now, I said that Paul doesn't often define in 2 Timothy what the gospel actually is, but he does give us a clue here in verse 10. This calling which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What does Jesus do? What's the point of the cross? What is central to our faith? That the world was lost in darkness, but by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the light has come and has brought life with it. That's the gospel. And he says, Timothy, you have been entrusted with this. This calling that you've been given, this calling that we tell you, hey, look, God's going to get you ready for this. I understand these these young men and these young women who have maybe never done this before. He's going to prepare you. He's going to get you ready. He's going to give you everything that you need. That thing that he has given you is the most precious, the most powerful, the most glorious mission that has ever been given to anyone, anywhere. There is no higher calling. There is no greater mission. There is nothing more revolutionary or world-changing in the history of the earth. What you have been called to do is at the very pinnacle of the heart of God. So when we say that we have been called to proclaim God's glory and grace and to work that mission and that calling out in your lives, we're saying that it's greater than any human achievement that has ever been achieved. You hold the gospel in your hand, right? It's the gospel. It's important just to take a moment that we understand what's being said and what's not being said here. It's interesting how often I've heard the gospel referenced by believers on both the left and the right over the last couple of months, especially in the last few weeks. If I had to give you one little phrase here, and we'll wrap it up, I know, shortly, it's this. Not everything is the gospel, but the gospel changes everything. Not everything is the gospel, but the gospel changes everything. Uh... Not everything is the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, uh, of course, there exploded after the death of George Floyd, racial unrest in this country, the likes of which I can't remember in my lifetime. Maybe if you lived through uh, 60s and early 70s and the riots related to Vietnam, maybe you remember that, but that was before me. And I heard this phrase used a lot, right? Racial reconciliation, reconciling to one another, is at the very heart of the gospel, right? To be reconciled man to man, this is the gospel. Now, it's interesting because I've heard a number of other things also talked about as the heart of the gospel, right? Um, And I've heard it from ecologists, saving this earth at the very heart of this gospel. I've heard it politically. 
on, on the left and the right, you've got to understand that we've got to support a man like Joe Biden because what he will be able to, this is the very heart of what it means to live like Jesus Christ. And on the other end, man, I tell you, if you don't get behind and support for Donald Trump, then you are missing out on, on what God is doing at the very heart of the gospel. Let's be really careful here. Because you can watch the news for just a little while and hear that phrase applied to dozens and hundreds and thousands of things. And people can take whatever they're passionate about, politically or sociologically, culturally, and drape it in the shadow of the cross and say, this is at the very heart of the gospel. It's not. Man has been separated from God and plunged into darkness. And God sends his son to die and rise again to bring light and life. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. If the gospel is everything, then the gospel is nothing. The gospel is one thing. The power of Christ to redeem sinners to a holy God. But here's the way that I've seen that abused. And I saw it even just yesterday. There were men and women in this photograph, linked in arms, marching down the street, protesting any number of things some with no merit at all and some with great merit. And the comment over that particular picture was, this is nonsense. And believers don't need to worry about this. We just need to be about the gospel. And that's true. We do need to be about the gospel, right? But let's not pretend that the gospel doesn't touch every other thing. Even think about the way that we've established policy here for COVID, right? It's in light of how we best reckon with, through this word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to think about how we think about how we interact with our police, how we interact with the African-American community here in Rocky Mount, how we interact with national politics and who we vote for and what policies mean the most to us and all the rest. They are all related to, as believers, how we view the impact of the gospel. The gospel is not everything. But everything is changed in light of the gospel. Right? So uh, imagine that the gospel is this planet on which we live. And here's our issue of the day, right? Whatever it is, some are really important and some are maybe less important. The gospel has, and, and I'm going to do this. You ready for this? I'm going I'm to drop it and not catch it. Maybe one of these guys will catch it here. I want you to see what happens to this ball. Anybody got a guess? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be drawn straight down and then bouncing. I bet it's going to just end up on the floor, right? right? And there we go. Stuck to the carpet. The gospel has its own gravity that pulls all other things out of their own orbit down to itself. It changes these things 
it relates to these things. It calls believers who reckon with the gospel to reckon with these things. The gospel is not everything. It's one thing, but it changes all these other things. Do you see? And so as believers, we don't get to say, that's not the gospel. Let's just be about the gospel. And then neglect all the things that the gospel draws to it and how it transforms everything it touches. Paul understands this. He goes on to say, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. You should guard this deposit. He ends the chapter in this way, and it's personal. You see it moving from talking about Timothy to talking about himself. Even as he's building into Timothy this loyalty and fidelity, I think he's seeking this back from Timothy. Uh, You are aware uh, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among them Phygelus and Hermogenes, Wouldn't you hate to be called out for 2,000 years for having abandoned Paul? The only way these people are remembered. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. As you well know, all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Two case studies there. Two people who walked away and one who searched him out even while he was in prison and searched him out and found him unashamed. Father, I pray this morning as we sit on the front porch and listen to Paul interact with Timothy that we would find in our youth, in our foolishness in our lack of experience that old Paul brings us a great model of how to live out gospel work help us to be encouraged to be reminded of how we've been equipped and to reckon with the magnitude of what has been entrusted to us in Jesus name Amen